Good morning. Romans chapter 12, if you join me there, that's where we're going to be today. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you today to receive your word, to receive training in righteousness, to receive correction, to receive the truth. So Lord, Guide us in that way. Guide us by your spirit today, we pray. Um, Lead us into your truth through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read Romans 12, verses 16 to 18. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I was reflecting this week that I think I grew up in the heyday of Christian culture in America, the late 80s and the 90s. We had just had the greatest of the Christian t-shirts and the music and TV. (laughs) But of course, when I say greatest... I mean that in more of a nostalgic, kind of quintessential sense, rather than about the quality. And I realized that a lot of what Christian bookstores in the 90s were doing was simply peddling knockoffs of the greater culture. And I remember clearly how the CDs were marketed in my particular bookstore. There was a poster that said, if you like these bands, and it gave you a list of these secular bands, then try this band and it listed the Christian alternative. And probably a greater example of this is the Christian t-shirt. From far away, you think I'm just advertising Reese's peanut butter cups, right? But on closer look, what a surprise, it actually says Jesus. (laughs) Oh look, those Christians, they're going around wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. Oh wait, it's a breadcrumb and fish. (laughs) It's cute, right? And don't get me wrong, it's fun, and I enjoy irony, but there comes an issue when Christians use this kind of irony to stand apart from the culture. First of all, this irony says, look, I'm just like you, but I'm also above you. I like the same things as you, but instead, this is more sanctified. It has a Bible verse on it. Secondly, and this is the more important part for today, By trying to stand ironically apart from the culture, the irony is that it's letting the culture set the tempo, letting the culture set the trends and the styles. What we end with is Christians with this little brother inferiority complex. There's a lack of identity in and of itself. We want the same things as the world, but we want to stand apart from the world. So we end up settling for a cheap substitute something that mimics the world, but it's not quite worldly, and it's also not quite Christian either. And I bring all of this up because Paul begins this section by telling us that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. If we are seeking to resemble the world, then we are going to miss Christ. Now, t-shirts and music are one thing, but we are called to have an ethic that the world does not share where the weakest are worthy of the most honor, 
where we lay our lives down for the betterment of others rather than seeking our best life, where we can give blessing and honor even to those who persecute us. If we are conformed to this world, we will not be conformed to the way of Christ. We have been delivered from the shifting standards of this world. We have been redeemed from only seeking after our pleasure. We have been transferred to a kingdom that is not of this world and thankfully doesn't look like this world. And in response to the great mercy that he has shown us, we must take our cues from Christ. We need to let him set the tempo, the trends, and the style. Jesus has freed us from this world. So let us live with otherworldly humility, patience, and peace. I want to read again, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, verse 16 is rounding out what we talked about in last week's sermon. Christ calls us and empowers us to think in an otherworldly manner, to bless those who persecute, to be aligned with one another so that their joys are our joys, their sorrows are our sorrows. And the ESV translate this idiom to say, live in harmony. And some of your translations will take the more literal that says, be of one mind. And I think when we take those translations together, we get a, a fuller picture here. This is not a fluffy kind of harmony. And that's going to be a theme in these verses today, that, that we don't see these commands as detached from the real world, but rather transforming the world that we live in. For instance, this harmony, it's not just suspending thought and reason in order to have free thoughts and chill vibes with one another. This is a uniting in one mind. Theologian R.C. Sproul is helpful on this point to say that being of one mind is more than doctrinal unity. Intellectual agreement, such as we find in our creeds and doctrinal statements, is only a portion of what Paul is talking about. In this context, being of one mind has to do with affection. This unity of mind is about our affection for fellow believers. And this is why it's linked to rejoicing and weeping in the previous verse. It's not a distant sympathy of, oh, that's, that's great for them, or, oh, that's so hard for them. It's an intimate empathy, feeling what they feel, united to them in mind. I also like the ESV's use of harmony because it actually illustrates this point if you think musically. The one singing harmony is the one hitting notes that accord in conjunction and complement to the melody line. And the opposite of this would be dissonance, discord, and really just annoyance, right? So Paul expounds on that aspect in the corresponding phrases, do not be haughty, never be wise in your own sight. These negative commands we can view as the enemy of the positive command. Haughtiness and self-centeredness are what disrupt the harmony that we are to have as believers. So, do not be haughty. Haughty is an interesting word, and it's gone a bit out of fashion. So the NIV translates this as proud, but that kind of loses a little bit of the punch. 
So let's bring haughty back, shall we? Bring it back into our vocabulary, because it's descriptive here. The old roots of this word, they describe something that is high, something that is superior. Essentially, being haughty is to think of yourself as higher. It's to think of yourself as above something. That the only way to look on others is to stare down your nose at them. And I think it's clear that this is an enemy to Christian unity and harmony because people think that they're above it. But as with all these commands, we need to do the humble practice of preaching this to ourselves first, right? This isn't about your neighbor. This isn't about your spouse or your friend. We first have to look inwardly. To live in harmony with others in the church, it's going to take sacrifice. We have to reprioritize our lives in order to be united with others. We have to say that our pleasure, our comfort, and our money, they must come second to my brothers and sisters. You cannot be of one mind with others if you stare down at them from up in your tower. So what must we give up to associate with the lowly? Maybe it's your high ambitions, ambitions to excel in your career or to move up a social ladder or to be thought of those in high positions. But that's not how we learned Christ. He came into this world, the king of all, with endless riches and endless power, and he gave all of that up to rub shoulders with the weak, the losers, the outcasts. There were not tasks that he saw himself as above, and especially there were not people that he put himself above. This is the kind of mindset that you will not find in worldly wisdom. So let us not seek worldly acclaim, but rather that we would be united to our brothers and sisters. Let us seek to be one with them rather than above them. He continues, Paul continues to be counter to the way that the world thinks by saying that we should never be wise in our own sight. And this is otherworldly wisdom because in our world, the loudest voice is the one that's heard. You can have the dumbest logic and reasoning, but if you have a platform, your wisdom gets to be heard. If you have money, your wisdom gets to be heard. But Christ is calling us away from being so self-important. In one manner, it means not being self-justifying about our own opinions and convictions. For the Christian and the non-Christian alike, we try to sanctify our opinions by way of, of passion and emotion. If an idea hits us so strongly, then, then that must be evidence of its truth. But the scripture is telling us that truth, it can't be so subjective. If we see ourselves united with our brothers and sisters and rather than above them, then our opinions and our convictions, they'll be sharpened to the truth through conversation, through dialogue, and correction. Now, I'm a believer in open discourse, debate, differing opinions. But there seems to be a correlation that the more someone talks about the need for open discourse and debate, the less likely that they will be to admit that they're wrong. Now, that's just an observation. But maybe you've experienced this too. Maybe you've experienced this when people think that they're having a discussion, but really it's just a monologue in the presence of other people. And this is exactly why online discourses often turn so toxic, even among Christians. So this is why we have to see that this wisdom from Paul, it's otherworldly. 
We cannot go to a brother or sister and think of ourselves as high and lofty, that I will condescend to their level just to tell them what they should think, or just to tell them what they should do, just to drop some wisdom on them and be on my way. That, thankfully, is not the way of Christ. To have this harmony, we have to be on the same level, of the same mind, willing to be wrong, willing to be humble, willing to sacrifice my right to the high and lofty things in order to be associated with the weak. Jesus came to each of us in our weakness, in our rebellion, in our ignorance of the truth. And he brought himself low to associate with each of us, that we would be called his friend, that, we, that the religious people looked down on him for befriending the lowly of the world. He came down to our level to bring mercy and compassion. So we must respond not by seeing ourselves as above the Christian life. Let us be more conformed to our Savior than to the order of this world. Let's continue reading in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul shifts focus to the themes that are going to close out this passage. Patience, forgiveness, peace, goodness triumphing over evil. And here, once again, we have negative exhortations and positive exhortations. And by this, I mean there's something to refrain from, And then there's something to move forward, to take a proactive step towards. Firstly, repay no one evil for evil. We must refrain from retaliation, the eye for an eye kind of mentality. And next week, Pastor Chuck will deal more in depth with the command about vengeance, but I'll give a few brief thoughts for us. That Paul touches on something that is so near and dear to our fallen condition. And this is all the more clear to anyone that has young children. That it, doesn't ma- it didn't need to be taught to you. From a young age, you just develop this sense of justice and fairness. And your immature mind is, is only focused on getting what is yours. So even children instinctively believe that if something's done to me, it justifies my retribution. I must get even. I, it must be paid back in kind. So then when we grow into adulthood... This instinct doesn't go away. Instead, we delude ourselves into thinking that we know the righteous standard for revenge, that we are wise in our own eyes. And this is why some of the best-selling movies of all time are about people getting their revenge. Quentin Tarantino wouldn't have a career without it. But we must not be deceived into thinking that we can be impartial to judge when revenge can be taken. Let us not think that we hold the standards of justice. Instead, as next week will show, vengeance is for the Lord, not for me. So don't take the cues from the world on revenge. Instead, we are to take proactive steps. And without this second part, we might be content to think that we can just stew on injustice in our head that we might convince ourselves it's okay to plot and imagine and dream about the revenge as long as we don't take action. But we are called to something higher. We are called to the standard that Christ set, where when he stood before his accusers, stripped 
beaten, mocked, spat on. When he was given the platform and the opportunity to run to his defense, to set the record straight, to shame all of those who took action against him, he did not open his mouth. Then, when he was on the cross, he opens his mouth, and this not to bring cursing and puffing himself up, but he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Give thought to doing what is honorable in the sight of all. Instead of plotting your revenge, you are to use that mental capacity to be plotting good for your enemy. You are to spend your time and your energy cooking up good ideas to bless that person rather than getting even. You are to pay back in kindness, goodness, and peace. This ethic is not found in this world. This is found in Christ. It's exemplified in Christ, and it's empowered by Christ. And I don't know about you, I find these words very convicting. And it's not that I'm like some wrathful, angry person that's always bent on revenge. But in hearing the true standard and remembering how Christ did this so perfectly, I'm reminded just how far I am from that. I would rather harbor bitterness. I would rather plot my revenge. I would rather meditate on what I deserve. Let alone going that next step, moving towards someone, being gracious, seeking their good. This seems impossible. And if you are wrestling with your guilt in this, I want you to hear that before you knew Christ, you only knew self-justification. You only knew revenge and payback. When you came to Christ, you realized just how patient God had been through all of your failure, all your sins and transgressions, all of your seeking after yourself. And the good news that I have for you today is that God didn't stop being patient when you became a Christian. The difference is that when you hear this righteous standard, seeking good rather than revenge, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, when you hear this standard, you need to see this is already true about you. It's already true about you because you have been united with Christ. And where he did it perfectly, it has been credited to your account as though you always did it perfectly. And then we await the day where this will be perfectly exemplified in us as well. But until that day comes, we recognize how far we still fall short of this standard. And we run to Christ in repentance. And you will find grace and patience in him still. When we hear about this righteous standard, this is already true about us, and it becomes an indicator of how the Spirit is shaping us to be more like Christ. So if you feel that guilt today, don't suppress it, don't ignore it. Instead, recognize the Spirit prompting you saying, this is what we're working on today. So as you reflect on the great grace that Christ has given us, how patient he has been with you, that informs us how to respond. Because we have been shown such patience We can treat others with that patience. God will make things right. 
I have freedom from my own revenge. So let us use that freedom to seek good for our brothers and sisters. Let's look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. If we are taking cues from the world, this might read, to achieve peace, you must silence, cancel, deplatform, discredit, shame, any opponent deemed toxic. But that's not harmony. That's not accord. That's not peace. That is overpowering an opponent. And it takes the all out of the equation here. But oh, how my mind runs with the beginning words here. If possible, so far as it depends on you. And my, my flesh just perks up at that, those words like, aha, there's an out here, right? Sorry, I, I really tried. I really tried. They're just too difficult. I mean, if it were up to me, we'd be cool, right? But really what I mean is, if they would just concede to my side, if they would admit their fault, if they would praise my perspective, if they would not make me take any credit for my actions, then we'd be cool. But I want you to see that this peace, it's not fluffy, it's not cheap. Because once again, this isn't detached from our reality, but it is right there in the midst of our circumstances. The path of peace laid out here, it's somewhere in between being a doormat for people and being a silencing narcissist. And I want to describe this as a quiet strength, a quiet resilience, a quiet resolve. When I spoke earlier about the Christian subculture, I said that we can sometimes have this little brother inferiority complex. We want to be taken seriously in the world. We want to feel important. But if we're waiting on the shifting voices in the world to give us value, we will always feel inferior. True strength, true strength comes from a stable identity. One that does not shift with the times or with the people that we're around. An identity that is rooted in the dignity of being a child of God. So let's work backwards. I'll show you what I mean. We are called to live in harmony together. It takes a strong self-identity, a strong resolve to practice humility. It means I'm not depending on someone outside of me to define me. I'm not looking to my peers or my position or my bank account to define me. I can do what Christ calls me to because he defines me. Once again, repay no one evil for evil. It takes stability, resolve, confidence in your identity not to seek revenge. You don't need to prove anything to your opponent or to those looking on. Men, your masculinity is not in question when you choose to do good over paying back with strength. True strength comes from an unwavering identity. So what does it mean then to live peaceably with all? Well, this does not mean that you're a doormat. Just lying down, just trying to please, or trying to sweep it under the rug. That's not peace. First of all, it isn't peace because it's eating you up inside. You might project tranquility but your mind is constantly replaying it, tearing yourself down, maybe planning your silent revenge. But secondly, 
This isn't peace because the other party never learns, never changes, never knows any different. And commentators agree, this is not peace at all costs. We do not compromise with evil or falsehood to maintain tranquility. After all, love must be genuine, as it says in verse 9. So if you are a people pleaser by nature, always trying to play peacemaker, on the surface it looks virtuous, but it is acting from a place of insecurity rather than strength. Living peaceably cannot be defined by the shifting standard of pleasing another person. As a child of God, we have no obligation to please anyone other than Christ. Being united with Christ gives us security and stability and unwavering identity. Now, this doesn't mean an impassioned standing up for yourself and letting loose of all the feelings that you've bottled up. Because our identity is secure in Christ, we can choose the path of a quiet resolve, resilience, strength. I want to speak of these things. I want to be clear that this is more general to common kinds of relationships and conflicts that we might find ourselves in. The quiet resolve is not an excuse to bear some kind of abuse. If you're experiencing abuse in your household or your relationship, please come speak to a pastor. We want to help you find your way forward to safety. So let the resolve and the resilience that we're talking about from our identity in Christ, let that be the strength to go and find help. If we're taking cues from Christ and our identity in Christ, then we act out of the strength and dignity that we have in him. We don't compromise with evil that would degrade us. Now, once again, under the guidance of R.C. Sproul, I've found wisdom in this point, that he agrees that neither Jesus or Paul could have been accused of being a doormat for people. He then goes on to say that Christians need to make a distinction between offense given and offense taken. As we engage with one another in the church and also live as Christians in the world, he advises that we take this distinction. If we engage the world with malice of forethought, thinking in advance of our offense, maybe even getting a little excited about the offense of the gospel, we're in the wrong. That is offense given. And we need to see that the right thing in the wrong way for the wrong reasons is wrong. And then on the other side of this is offense taken. As we live out the gospel, we seek to proclaim the gospel, others will take offense. The offense taken is when we refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world, and we seek to be conformed to Christ. This is the arena where Paul says, as far as it depends on you. We cannot compromise our convictions to Christ and please everyone. However, as far as it is possible, we are to be sensitive, as much as it depends on us. I want to call you to look into your own heart with discernment on this. As you hear other Christians speaking into culture, I want you to be cautious. As you see them on YouTube, on the news, on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, be cautious, first of all, on their content. Are they exhibiting these principles of being like Christ? 
being peaceable to all, living peaceably. Secondly, we must ask, what's it invoking in us? Is it provoking your flesh to peace, compassion, empathy? Or is it provoking you to anger, discord, and retribution? Let us be conformed to Christ, not to this world. Let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We've been given a difficult task as Christians. I feel like I was hardly able to scratch the surface of the balancing act that we have to go through as Christians. As Christians living as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but in the earthly realm. And as Christians, we don't have the luxury to just do what's right in our own eyes. We don't have the luxury of just keeping up with the trends of culture, seeking to please the powers that be. We don't have these luxuries, but we have better. Our identity doesn't shift with the winds of culture. We don't depend on the world to set the trends for us. We are stable and secure in the finished work of Christ, being united with him, being made to be more like him, And because we have such a stable and firm foundation in Christ, let us respond in true strength, showing this world an otherworldly humility, patience, and peace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Jesus, thank you for giving us the perfect example. And Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, shape us to be more like Christ. And we are so in need of your grace and your patience with us and your mercy every step of the way. Thank you for your faithfulness to us even when we are unfaithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close in song.